Hello, and welcome to the Will AI Kill the Internet episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Felix Salmon of Axios, joined by Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. And also Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we are on a podcast, which you are listening to on the internet. It's this doomed because of something, something, chatbot something. We are going <laughs> to answer that question. Um, we are going to talk about oil companies and how they managed to make so much money last year and whether that is going to last. We are going to talk about Bed Bath & Beyond and why it is not making any money last year. Poor Bed Bath & Beyond and whether that is reversible. We have a Slate Plus segment on Tether and whether it was saved by the Federal Reserve. It's all coming up on Slate Money. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I feel like this was the week when everyone started taking the idea of AI infecting search rather more seriously than they had done until now. And when I say everyone, I mean the stock market. We saw Microsoft zoom up in valuation, exceeding $2 trillion after it unveiled a new AI-powered Bing, Bing search. Bing! Bing. Meanwhile, Google had its own AI-powered search called Bard, and it they released a video of Bard, and wherein Bard gave the wrong answer to a question. And maybe as a result of that, maybe not as a result of that, and we can talk about that, the valuation of Google went down. And everyone seemed to be convinced that the next chapter of search was all going to be about who wins the whole AI thing. And so my question for Elizabeth is... Do you buy it? Do you think that search is going to be revolutionized by chatbots? Uh, I think yes and no. And you can kind of see it in the difference between the Bard demo 
and what was happening with Bing. There was a good piece by Kevin Rose, Ruse in the New York Times about the Bing search engine, which he very much liked. And the way it apparently works is you type in something for search, and the model, which is based on GPT-4, will automatically spit out you know, some text about whatever you're searching for, but you also see the sort of standard search results on, I think, the left hand of your browser. So you're getting, you know, both the advantages of sort of both systems together. But then you go to the Microsoft, or sorry, the Google demo with BARD, and you see the problem with relying exclusively on chatbots for search. Um, and what happened in the demo was uh, the, the, the Google executives plugged in a question about, what discoveries from the James Webb Space Telescope you could tell your nine-year-old about. And it spit out three bullet points, one of which was just technically inaccurate. And then, of course, every astrophysicist on Twitter pointed it out immediately. And the reason why it's inaccurate is because these models are really uh, language models, so they predict what word is going to come next. So they're more probabilistic than deterministic. And as a result, sometimes they just make shit up. So, and that's kind of what happened in the Google demo. The, the the Microsoft one does provide links. So, you know, if you if you want to check that anything says what the bot says that it says, you can just click on the link and do that. But one of the big questions that publishers have is basically, is anyone ever going to click those links? If the chat bot gives you the answer that you're looking for, no one's going to bother, or very few people are going to bother actually navigating to that site to get the answer from the site when they've already got the answer from Microsoft. And as a result, the I, the fear among publishers is that all of their traffic is going to go down and especially their search traffic is going to go down enormously because, you know, effectively, once the search engine has spidered your site, none of the search engine's users need to actually go to your site since all of that information now just kind of lives on the search engine's servers. Yeah, also, if the users begin to trust the chatbots, what ends up happening is that the bots are capable of memeing disinformation because if you really believe in the credibility of whatever the bot spits out and it becomes a sort of universally accepted reality, then we end up with a lot of misinformation floating out there. Perhaps. I, I'm less worried about that because although chatbots can certainly spit out false information as we saw in that google demo um i don't think they generally spit out um how would you put it the same the same false information to everyone i think everyone gets different false information and so like insofar as they get false information at all and so it's not going to have any broad societal effects beyond perhaps a slight diminishment in trust in search results, which is probably all for the best. Yeah, I think, though, whenever it, it gets stuff wrong, somebody characterized it as the, you know, part of the problem is that it's it phrases things in a way that makes it feel like it's very confidently wrong. And I realize that that could describe, you know, half the people on Twitter, but it still, uh, you know, adds credibility to what might be inaccurate information just because uh, within the context of the stuff that it's spitting out that's right, you know, you, a user might not know the difference. Right. On an individual level, I absolutely believe you, and I think this is true, that people will read false things 
spat out by chatbots and they will believe the false things spat out by chatbots. I just don't think that the chatbots are going to be spitting out the same false things to millions of different people at the same time. So you're not going to have like some false meme factoid being believed by a large chunk of the population in like a problematic way. It's going to be believed by one person in a problematic way. To take it back a little bit to the business situation and the future of search, I think what's sort of interesting is that Google's stock went down, I don't think, because the Bard made a, a factual error necessarily. Like that didn't help. <laughs> but I think bigger picture, Google's um, search business is just immensely profitable. It's like $100 billion in search ad revenue a year or something. It's just gigantic and huge. And that's Google's bread and butter. And any like any progress from Microsoft and Bing or any shift in the way search works incrementally hurts Google. And if Google is going to move to compete, it's moving into a less profitable kind of search because the chat GPT and AI search costs more money. No, this is this is absolutely, absolutely key is that the profit margins on Google searches are infinite. The cost to Google of someone conducting a search is just a tiny fraction of a cent and they can sell all of the search results for, you know, however many billions of dollars they, they make from this. And then that's just pure profit for them. You know, with chat GPT, the amount of compute that you use on every single search goes up by many orders of magnitude. And that is expensive. And you need to constantly be training your AI on this enormous corpus of language and, and and information on the web. And that and the cost of that is enormous. And the reason why OpenAI switched from being a nonprofit to being a for-profit was precisely that they they just they were like, we need to spend billions of dollars on on compute and we can't do this in a nonprofit way. And Google has that kind of money and Microsoft has that kind of money. And so they're able to spend that those you know tens of billions of dollars on on training up their ais and spitting out many many search results but you know chat gpt people were saying like it was costing them like a buck per query or something and they, and they were spending like hundreds of thousands of dollars a day just answering queries and scale that up to something the size of google and it becomes possibly you know an unprofitable business for google so that's a real worry that if they need this to compete, then suddenly their profit engine just disappears. Right. It's an existential threat to the core of Google's whole existence. <laughs> like Google does a lot of other things, but the search is everything. That's their baby. And for Microsoft, it's like icing on the cake. If they take a little piece of their of Google's business away, it's like a great it's great for them, and it's not their core business, so it's completely different calculus um, on Satya Nadella's part. It's it's definitely going to take a long time. You know, at the moment, this new revamped being isn't even broadly available. When it does become broadly available, it's going to become, in the first instance, broadly available to people who use the Microsoft Edge browser on their desktop computer, which all, is like six eight. Of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So bless those people and like congratulations you now get to use you know an AI powered web browser. I think it's going to be a very long time until before AI powered web browsers become 
a big thing. Like, you know, is is Google going to feel the need to incorporate its AI into Chrome? Like, maybe it could, but I'm not seeing that anytime soon. So I don't think that, you know, everyone's suddenly going to switch to Bing, right? Especially not if that means they have to switch to Microsoft Edge. On the other hand, there is a certain kind of inevitability to this, right? People are going to want to be able to just ask English language questions and get English language answers. And at some point, that's just going to be how we ask questions of, you know, the internet is like, we're just going to be, you know, can you find that article for me? I think I read it a few years ago. It might've been in the New Yorker that was about cake and that was in Japan and Germany and they'll work out what you're talking about and they'll show you the article. And it's so hard to formulate those queries in the standard search bar right now. And it'll become so much easier that people will just, you know, gravitate to anywhere that allows them to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And Google's going in that direction anyway. There was already kind of that hand wringing we were talking about earlier where if Google gives you the answer, then you don't need to click the links kind of issues are a little perennial like that that's always a kind of stressor like to go back to the classic what time is the super bowl you know google if you google that now google will tell you and you don't need to go to whatever seo optimized media outlet is trying to cash in on that um and that's another like bright spot here i think this is why buzzfeed was should never have bought huffpost because they just don't get that sweet what time is, is the super bowl <laughs> traffic but buzzfeed is going to be using Chat GPT, open AI, it's already using it, right, to formulate quizzes and whatnot. That was big news. That was big news. And maybe in an ideal world, we can just ask Google, like, who's going to win the Super Bowl, and then we don't need to watch it anymore. And then <laughs> and then there won't be any Super Bowl advertising anymore. Felix, I don't want to front run my number, but there's no way you're watching the Super Bowl, right? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is true. There is I, I I I did read the little Axios cheat sheet on what what is the Super Bowl, uh, <laughs> but the chances of me actually watching it are precisely zero. <laughs> One thing I thought was interesting: um, our producer Anna Phillips sent around a piece from The Verge with like all the things and challenges Chat GPT and AI presents, and the last on the list was ultimately AI search could actually kill the internet. <laughs> because no one will create the content anymore because no one will look look at the internet anymore if the AI is just going to do all that work for you then what's the point right and then and then what so yeah my my view of that is like you know bring it on please a, a, a consummation devoutly to be wished the um <laughs> the no the the internet was always if you go back to you know the original dream of of Tim Berners-Lee was a bunch of individuals yeah, just like sharing information and in, out of the goodness of their heart and everyone being on this peer-to-peer network and learning stuff together. And then it moved into this, it sort of evolved into this advertising-driven scale play thing where people would create websites not because they wanted to sort of share information out of the goodness of their heart, but because they reckoned they could um attract enough traffic to then be able to sell those eyeballs to advertisers. And that whole model was horrible in many ways. And we've talked about this over and over again on Slate Money. But if we can 
move a little bit away from that model, then there will still be plenty of websites that people put up and people like to read and people like to write, which have useful information on them, including websites like, you know, NewYorkTimes.com that are entirely funded by subscriptions. And, you know, people will still advertise wherever the eyeballs are. And maybe the eyeballs won't be on um, places that are driven by search traffic, but there will be eyeballs somewhere like on, you know, Axios news editors. That's not search driven. <laughs> Yeah, so basically, it'll just cannibalize the content farms, which we want to happen. We do want of. that to happen. So maybe it's a good thing. Will AI will get rid of the internet? Was that the headline of the story? <laughs> <laughs> if, if I'm trying to optimize SEO, it'll get rid of part of the internet. It, it, will, it will get it will get rid of the like the, the annoying parts of the internet. You know, it will get part. It will get rid of the the pages that are so cluttered with ads that you can barely read them. It'll get rid of the annoying recipes that go on for 8,000 words before you get to the recipe. It'll go, it'll get rid of everything that is like SEO optimized and it will go back to being actually useful again. Oh my God. If I persuaded myself that this is, this is, we are entering utopia. Of course we're not entering utopia. It never but, works like yeah, that. And it might, and it might possibly conceivably Reduce the dominance of, of the duopoly, you know, of alphabet and meta and, and the way they dominate the media business. And that would also be good. The media business will always exist, right? Advertising for the past 200 years has been 6% of GDP or whatever the number is, right? Like, it's not like that's going to change. If that advertising moves away from content mills and indeed moves away from um, alphabet and meta then it will go somewhere else. And it will probably go to better places who actually produce content rather than, you know, just parasitically sit on top of it. So it'll make the internet 11% less annoying. It'll make all the content less cheap, less free, and wind up, we'll have to pay more money for things. Like already, I think um, ChatGPT is doing like a subscription. You know, you can pay $20 a month or something to get, I don't know, better AI searching or something. Um, and a, a lot of those uh, content farms offer free content as opposed to the New York Times, your example, which is pay for. So the free internet has been good for a lot of reasons, but also like world destroying for a lot of reasons. So maybe it's good. If it's no, I, th I think I think we will still have a lot of free internet and I think it might be a less annoying free internet. The, the question of, um, you know, where will all of that media ad spend go? is a super interesting one. But as long as most of it comes to slate money, I'm not complaining. <laughs> or Axios markets. <laughs> but enough of AI. If there's one thing that really drives the world, it is not actually media ad buys. It is oil. So we're going to talk about that after this ad break. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people camp here, ransacked my computer. 
and I, I got people fracturing me, I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Emily. Felix. We just had the most money ever made by oil companies in the history of humanity in a single year. And what do we make of it? And is it good or bad? Oh, my gosh. Things are complicated. I'm not going to say good or bad. Oil (laughs) companies made record profits last year, thanks in part to a war, um, or thanks mostly to a war. We could talk about that. And is it good or bad? I mean, it's probably bad because we know that carbon emissions are destroying our planet, et cetera, hastening global warming and all of that. And since the oil companies made so much money on oil and sort of like it gave them this new life and new license to scale back, which was already a small percentage of its business, scale back its commitments to energy what do they call it? Energy transformation, energy transition. BP, for example, announced earlier this week that it's scaling back on its plans to reduce oil and gas production because, uh, duh, they're making so much money from oil and gas production. Why would they scale back to do something else? Well, it's 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 a little bit more complicated than that. Mm. Um, you asked me a simple like, question, so I'm not giving you the. Well, I, <laughs> I, you know, it's true. You are you. The, everything you said is completely right, especially the bit where you said it's complicated. Like it is. It it is a rather complicated situation, mm-hmm. um, but the first thing we should underscore is that record profits does not mean record production. They are not mm-hmm. actually pumping increased amounts of oil out of the ground, and this is actually a big change from all of the other periods of history when oil prices went up. Normally, when oil prices go up, what happens is the oil industry goes, oh, my God, there's so many profits in pumping oil. We should pump more oil. Mm -hmm. And then they pump more oil, and then they make more money because they're pumping more oil. For the first time ever, that didn't happen this time around. And you're absolutely right that BP made headlines this week by saying, well, maybe we won't cut the amount of oil that we're pumping quite as fast as we had said that we would. But they didn't come out and say, we're going to increase it. Mm. And in terms of carbon emissions, like, yes, they made more money, but it's not like there's, um, you know, they made more money just because the price was higher, not because the amount of emissions went up. Mm -hmm. The amount of emissions didn't go Mm -hmm. up. And the rise of renewables has continued to go up and to the right. And all of these companies continue to invest in renewables and to put billions and billions of dollars into wind, solar, and so forth. So in a weird way, the fact that they made so much money and just spent it on giving those profits to shareholders instead of making all of that money and spending it on drilling new oil wells is good. That's a hot take right there, Felix. I mean, they, they could have also spent the money, though, in investing more in renewables, which is still they a did. very small amount of their business. I mean, yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's a small but growing part of their business, and they are all investing in renewables. It's, it's, I mean, it's true that at the margin, you can always invest more. But if you just take the money that you're making from oil and just 
dividend it away so that you can't increase your your carbohydrates um income you know like renewables will rise and some of the rise in renewables will come from bp and shell and exxon and some of it will come from companies that have nothing to do with oil and i don't really mind which one you know it's not important to me that it's the big energy there's the bp and shells who uh, make all of the money from solar power rather than some solar upstart can i lay a fun fact out there for you guys that i learned reading a bloomberg article on bp and the fun fact is that bp considers growing its retail unit as part of its transition quote business so as this Bloomberg piece puts it in BP speak, ordering a cup of coffee at one of its gas stations helps to save the planet because that's part of its energy transition business. Just FYI. Okay. What I'm saying is <laughs> I don't think the oil companies are going to transition to anything. They have figured out before the pandemic that they need to please shareholders and give them money back and not necessarily drill more oil when the price of oil goes up. Um and that strategy like really paid off for them last year and they pay lip service to energy transition. But I think it's really at the end of the day, just lip service. I, I think it's more than just lip service. I mean, they're putting real money into this and they're making, and they're beginning to make real profits from it. And we have reached the point now where per kilowatt hour, certainly solar and probably wind are cheaper than oil mm -hmm. and gas right so if you want to be competing in the energy world you need to have wind and solar because that's that's the um that's where people are going to go first because that's the cheapest um i i just because their profits are coming mostly from oil i, I think it's a little bit overly cynical to say well you know we can't trust these guys to do anything in renewables i think they are doing stuff in renewables and as i say it kind of almost doesn't matter whether they are or not other people are the mix is changing you know you go down to texas and oklahoma and places like that that are you know were built on oil and the share of their the power over their grid the elect electricity they produce that comes from wind is absolutely enormous now the these things are real they have already happened and they will continue to happen and it's happening you know not very visibly and without enormous profits at big for-profit companies so far but that's fine yeah i think you're right i think there's going to be a lot more competition that these companies are going to face um from clean energy competition electric vehicles whatever but i don't think these are the companies that are going to lead us into that future at all. Um, this piece, again, that Anna sent around from Vox had some great, <laughs> um, great information. And for example, um, when some of these oil companies talk about their uh, energy, their low carbon investments, what they actually mean is making oil operations more efficient. <laughs> so tweaking their, their, you know, the way they produce oil to make it less bad for the environment which is a good thing it just well, that's good right yeah, yeah it's a good, good thing, thing but it doesn't mean that, that these are going to be the leaders in solar or wind energy you know in the future but why does it matter whether they're the leaders i'm or just not? pointing it out it's just like these companies make money from oil that's what they do that's the end the end of the story like the, the whole idea that there's some kind of like tr transition ahead for them is not it's just not true. I don't get yeah, it. How much of those record profits are really just uh, these companies coasting on price volatility? 
So, I mean, it's a really good question, right? Exxon announced this week that they were moving into oil trading, which is basically just a zero-sum game of making money from price volatility. Um, obviously, when the volatility is up and to the right and prices are going up, then you make more money, right? And that's exactly what happened last year. This year, you know, prices are back down to below um, where they were when Putin invaded Ukraine. Yeah. So the profits this year are going to be much, much lower. You should, uh, Russia though, just announced that they're cutting output by another half a billion barrels. And so that's already caused a slight tick up in pricing. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, 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 the price ticks up, the price ticks down. But yeah, Russia does not have the ability to really, you know, it, like even OPEC doesn't really have the ability to, to, to control oil prices anymore, let alone Russia, which is a relatively small part of OPEC. So, yeah, you know, there's there's obviously a lot of trading to be done around the oil price, but the the big macro trend is absolutely that for the past, what, six months or so, the the price of oil is down and to the right. Mm. And, and, you know, we had that spike after the invasion and then and then we realized that, especially in Europe, Europe was capable of consuming much less Russian oil and gas than we ever imagined. And they managed to make that transition much faster than we imagined was was ever possible. Yeah, just to go back to uh, the, the retail stuff, though, it is kind of interesting how many, how, the kind of rhetorical gymnastics that companies that are fundamentally oil companies will use to sort of justify that actually they're they're being very environmentally friendly. And, and any money that you give them is fundamentally saving the world. So buy your coffee at BP and you're doing a good job. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not, I, I mean, sure. Like, why not? Like, you can buy a coffee anywhere and it's fine. I don't. I don't see. I'm not sure. Like, I feel like there's this kind of moralistic undertone to things like that Vox article, and just in general, people love to be upset at the bit at the oil majors, right? And they're like, these are bad companies, and we shouldn't believe them when they say they're switching to renewables, and you know, we shouldn't believe anything they're saying. And like, I, like there are bad faith communications from these companies, especially from ExxonMobil, which has a long history of such, you know, BP and Shell less so, but they do pollute, you know, they are, they are the companies that pump a lot of the oil out of the ground. And oil is a very dirty industry, you know? Um, and they make money from that. And that's like ethically icky. And if you don't want to own those stocks, because you don't want that kind of ethical ickiness on you, that's fine. Like, you know, you can divest from those stocks. Um, but, you know, in the, the big picture is that the world still needs a whole bunch of oil and gas production and, and that someone's going to do it. And the people doing it are going to make money until we really have switched to renewables. And then once we have switched to renewables, those companies, most of them are genuinely trying to position themselves that they are not going to be complete dodos. And they're going to continue to make money some other way. And they may fail, right? And Emily might be right that it's some other company we've never heard of that's going to be the, the you know, it's going to dominate the renewable renewables market. Or maybe it's just going to be a bunch of mom and pops with like one acre solar farms who are going to do it. Who knows? Like, we don't know what it's going, what that future is going to look like. Um, but yeah, I I just personally find it unhelpful to treat these oil majors as though they you know they're 
presumptively just part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not really with you, Felix, but I'll I'll piggyback off what you're saying to say <laughs> when politicians start talking about making these oil companies pay like a windfall windfall profit tax or something like that, that kind of bothers me um, because it's kind of like yeah oil and gas companies exist to sell oil and gas and it's a volatile business. And in a year where they do really well, like they should have the money, like the politicians need them to produce the oil and gas. It makes the global economy run without this stuff. Like we're all screwed forever right now until we make the transition. So um, it's not so, it's too complicated to say good or bad, but I think what people don't like is the greenwashing. No one likes that. Like, stop doing it. Cut it out. We know what you are. You produce this stuff that is dirty. And sadly, we all need it. And like, let's just be upfront about all that. Let's stop talking about anything but that. You know what I mean? Like, I, 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 I do think that you, you have a good point. There is this um, increasing feeling um, that I see on sort of left Twitter that the profits are bad, right? And or, and specifically when it comes to oil companies and, and calls for, you know, windfall profit taxes and stuff, which I'm not that opposed to, but like we that put that to one side. The idea is basically some version of, well, you know, they didn't need to make all of this money. They could have just sold the oil for less money and made less profit. Yeah, like yeah, what? More <laughs> but, but, that, but that makes no sense, right? There is there is like a yeah, global I, market price for oil. I don't think yeah. that's really the argument, though. I think I think the argument that a, you know lefty Twitter is often making is that there's something kind of obscene about record profits in an inflationary environment. I don't think they're saying profit categorically is bad, right? But so yeah, so what what would they want, right? from these companies they're saying like like how would they want these companies to make less profits they, you know they have a certain cost of pulling oil out of the ground they sell the oil at whatever the market price is when the delta between those two is large they make lots of money when the delta is between those two is small they lose money you know it's, yeah, it's think, like it's as simple as that i think the argument kind of holds more water if we're talking about consumer goods where the prices have gone up and now that inflation's ticking back down they're not the prices aren't coming down. Uh, but I agree with you that it doesn't necessarily apply to oil in particular. I, I, companies exist to make a profit, and they're going to try and make a profit however they can. And if they see an opportunity to raise prices and make more profit, then, like, that's what they're going to do. Like, I, I, maybe this is a different conversation, but I don't really – the criticism of, like, look at these companies. They're so greedy. They want to make a profit. I just – what? Like, yeah, yeah that's think, their yeah, whole the, business. The line is between... <laughs> they are for-profit companies. Yeah, yeah, but the line is between profit and what would technically or seem like price gouging. Yeah. Which I don't think is what's happening here, but I think that's the what what the sort of suspicions are based on when you see that kind of critique. Right. Well, you know, let's segue into that. Let's talk about whether companies are able to have pricing power and charge what they like and make what they like because it's something something inflation something after the break we're going to talk about bed bath and beyond so emily you and i were in washington this week at an axios thing and 
in between all of the enforced corporate jollity. All we were talking about was Bed Bath & Beyond. It was like the big nerd story of the week. And apropos this whole question of like, can for-profit companies just charge what they like in an inflationary environment? The clear answer from Bed Bath & Beyond seems to be hell no, they can't sell anything at any price and they're <laughs> hemorrhaging money and they're about to go bankrupt. Not 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 even like the sensible form of bankruptcy, which is chapter 11, where you do a capital restructure and like your bondholders become the new owners and the equity holders get wiped out, but the business continues. Um, but rather the bad form of chapter bankruptcy which is chapter seven which is basically you just liquidate everything for any amount of money you can have and then the whole thing just disappears because no one has any desire to run this terrible company which will never make money mm. so so like i mean so the first the first thing we should say about this is like if corporations had great pricing power in the age of inflation this would not be happening oh interesting Another hot take from Felix Salmon. People, that's what you're listening for. Um, yeah, it's true. Bed Bath & Beyond really screwed up because they used to be tremendously profitable. Um, but I guess uh, back in 2018 or 2019, um, the founders were forced off the board and these activist investors took over. And one of their big changes was to get rid of name brands and sell non-name brand generic, not the Cal Falon or or whatever goods that people had brand recognition for, but other stuff. And no one wanted to buy it. And the founders are quoted in this journal article being like, we fought so hard to get the name brands. You know, that was like a big draw for people. So that kind of killed the business. Plus it never made a good transition to online. It was kind of late. So for those reasons, the business kind of suffered. Then the pandemic, blah, 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 you would think. And I was really confused by this because in the pandemic, everyone was nesting and buying more of the kind of stuff that Bed Bath & Beyond sold. But for the reasons I think I just stated, it just didn't leverage any of that. Um, and the activist investors also did, they, I guess, before they came on, if you managed a Bed Bath & Beyond, you could kind of like arrange it however you wanted you know, whatever you thought the people in your local market would like most, sheets, hand towels, toasters, mix it up. Who knows? But with the activist investors, they came on and they were more like um, uniformity and what the store's layouts would look like and things like that, which is sort of like a death knell. It's kind of the opposite of what is happening with Barnes & Noble right now, where um, they went in that direction. It's kind of the same as what happened with Barnes & Noble, actually. They went in that direction of uniformity. Um, every store has to look the same, blah, blah, blah. And now they've dialed that completely back and they're doing more of the personalization and it's a, like a big hit for them. Um, but there is a whole other angle to the Bed Bath & Beyond story and the reason why we were talking about it all this week the financial in particular is financial shenanigans. We get to talk about financial shenanigans. And if you recall two years ago during the meme stock winter, and I can't believe it was two years ago, but it was. Um, Bed Bath and Beyond was one of those meme stocks, right? It was one. It was in that basket of stocks with AMC and BlackBerry and um, you know all of the rest of them, and it still is, and it still has active Reddit message boards of people pumping it to the moon and hodling and diamond hands and all of whatever. I have no idea what they're doing. Um, and on Monday. The stock 
you know, it went up from like $2 to $7 for reasons, you know, just because it was memeing. And the company came out and said, well, okay, you know, we are basically bankrupt. The chances of our stock going to zero are more or less 100%. If you look at the price of our bonds, you know, they're trading at five cents on the dollar. Like, if <laughs> there's no way this company is going to survive in such a form that all of the creditors will be able to pay off get paid off in full, let alone that there's going to be any money left over for shareholders. And yet somehow the share price was going up. And they're like, this is free money on the stock market. We want to take advantage of the free money that the shareholders are offering us. And so they did this incredibly convoluted and almost impossible to understand share issue, which wasn't common stock. It was preferred stock. It was sold mostly to like a single hedge fund called Hudson Bay. Um, They managed to raise almost as much as their entire market capitalization with like one piece of financial engineering. The idea is that Hudson Bay now gets to convert this preferred stock into common at a price that's lower than the common and make a profit by selling it to the meme stock crowd. It's incredibly convoluted, but it's kind of amazing that this kind of thing can exist, right? And that the existence of the retail investors and the Reddit crowd can give Bed Bath and Beyond a lifeline. And it does look as though this piece of whiz-bang financial engineering really has genuinely raised, I mean, it has genuinely raised more than $200 million for Bed Bath and & Beyond and is going to keep it alive for some number of months. So, yeah. So, so the shenanigans rescued Bed Bath & Beyond from bankruptcy, but not for long is what I think you're saying. Yeah, this this doesn't sound like it's going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, so so part part of part of what's happening here is that the management of Bed Bath and Beyond is particularly keen to avoid a Chapter Seven liquidation. If you go into Chapter Eleven bankruptcy, then managers keep on getting paid, and often they get like retention bonuses to make sure they stay at the company even after it's entered bankruptcy. So the managers aren't really afraid of chapter 11, but they are really afraid of chapter seven. If it goes into chapter seven, then they all just get fired and they get nothing. So anything they can do that will keep it alive a bit longer, will number one, just get them paid for that much longer. But also if it's possible that this is increasing the chances of some kind of chapter 11 filing as opposed to a chapter 7 liquidation, then that's particularly good for them. And there's even, dare I say it, a humanitarian, like an, or, you know, like a good lefty reason for this, which is that there are 50,000 people who work for Bed Bath & Beyond. And it's not just the managers. It's all of the people in all of the stores. They are closing stores, but they're also keeping a lot of stores open that would otherwise be closed in bankruptcy. And those 50,000 people now have jobs thanks to these financial shenanigans. And if the only losers are a bunch of, like, meme stock degenerates on on Reddit, then, like, great. Yeah, that's fair. Also, I think there's life to be had in Bed Bath & Beyond. I just want to add that. Like, What's your restructuring plan, Emily? Uh, well, <laughs> g- going back to what I said earlier, you do more personalization in stores. You get the name brands back. Maybe you cut the footprint of the stores so they're a little smaller and you do something with the website, I think, make it a little bit better. I think you could 
people will always need the stuff that they were selling. It's not like the market for towels, sheets, coffee pots, and pans and all that stuff went away. And it's not always so fun to buy that stuff on Amazon. It's confusing. And as um, there's a New York Magazine piece this week saying how terrible it is to shop on Amazon these days. Um, so I think I think if some smart person started managing Bed Bath & Beyond, it could actually become a thing again. Should we give it to James Dawn? Yes. Who's running Barnes & Noble and say, why, why don't you run Bed Bath yeah, & Beyond as well? Bed, you can sell Beyond. books. Why can't you sell toasters? Yeah, why can't you sell some toasters? I mean, there's these. this is not an impossible feat. Barnes & Noble has so many random things in their bookstores now. I, I would be unsurprised to see toasters. Mm. <laughs> oh, really? I thought the whole James Dawn thing was, was, was much more back to basics yeah, and we're like, we basics. don't have random things anymore and it was just books. Yes. Are they, are they, I was at a Barnes & Noble like two weeks ago and it was still... Crazy, but huh? Oh well. Maybe they just haven't implemented it yet. No, maybe that's just like maybe that was just like where you live, you know? Because they they can do do what they like. Well, no, but no, but actually, seriously, like that makes sense. Like New York City (laughs) is is experiencing this explosion of independent bookstores, right? Everyone, like every neighborhood has a new independent bookstore every you know every week, another one opens up. So, you know, the the hipster bookish crowd. They're going to the Indies. They're not going to Barnes and Noble. So the Barnes yeah, and Noble has to has to chase a slightly different crowd. Yeah, I think Bed Bath and Beyond can come back. I mean, look at Williams and Sonoma. People still go there. Bed Bath and Beyond could look like that, but be cheaper, and then people would go there. Emily, you should take it over. <laughs> I'll do it. You'll do it. Okay. Um, after the break, a numbers round. Emily, do you have a number this week? Yes. Uh, my number is $16 billion, $16 billion. That is how much, um, is expected to be betted. That's how much that, <laughs> that the American Gaming Association says people will wager on the Super Bowl, which is on Sunday. Um, and they're estimating that 50.4 million adults, which is, I guess, 20% of the population, are going to wager $16 billion. And that's double what they wagered last year. Um, and part of the excitement is that the game, which we will ask Felix if he knows who's playing in it, that the game um, is happening in Glendale, Arizona, and it will be the first Super Bowl to take place at a venue where you can um, you can gamble on the premises. So you could sit in the stadium and, like, bet on the game on your phone while it's happening. I have no opinion whether this is good or bad. Felix, do you know who's in the Super Bowl? It's, um, do I know who's in the Super Bowl? <laughs> I do because I read the Axios Yay! cheat sheet. It's um, it's not Arizona because they're, they're just the hosts, but they're not actually playing. Mm-hmm. Um, is one of them Kansas City? Yes. Yes. And... Yeah, uh, wait—is the other one a bird? Yes, yes, yes. It's Kansas City <laughs> against the birds. <laughs> Just leave it there. <laughs> Philadelphia Eagles. There you go, Eagles. <laughs> it's it's Eagles against cities or something. Yes, well, well done. Me. <laughs> I mean, personally, personally, I'm I'm betting a thousand dollars on the Eagles because obviously they're Eagles, right? How can the Eagles not win? So I have I have a Segway number which is also about American football, kind of, sort of. And my number is 24.3, 
which is the percentage of its spending that the Why Not You Foundation spent on charitable activities over the most recent two years for which we have filings. The Why Not You Foundation is run by a chap called Russell Wilson, who I think used to or still does play American football and is very famous and gets lots of money and in the way of such things decided that he was going to set up a charitable foundation. But the charitable foundation spends three times as much money paying, you know, its executives and generally running around staying alive as it does actually giving money to charity. And the lesson of this story is number one, don't give money to the vanity foundations of American football players. But number two, just don't set up a foundation or your own nonprofit. Like if you want to do good in the world, there are lots of very good nonprofits already and just give money to them and support them and raise money for them and don't try and do it yourself because it's a disaster. Why not you? Because it's a waste of money. So, Elizabeth, what's your number? Uh, My number is 100,000, and that's the number, approximate number of snow cannons that are making snow in the Alps right now. There's an FT story about... This is the uh, European Alps? Yes, about uh, ski resorts and the problem that everyone is having now because of climate change where there is just simply not enough snow. And they've been deploying creative strategies in order to... Uh, make sure that the slopes are still lovely and full of snow. (laughs) And what I learned about was called snow farming, where they essentially just save the snow over the winter and insulate it with wood chips. Oh, my God. And they expect 80% of it to (laughs) survive the summer, and then they just redistribute it. All right. I love that. Snow farming. That sounds great. It's a bit like, you know, the old-fashioned days when they used to carve up blocks of ice in the ice yes. in, in, in the Arctic and then ship them to Australia for the ice boxes. Yes. <laughs> um, I also like anything that's a cannon, snow cannon, t-shirt cannon, snow cannons. So yeah, yeah I feel yeah. Maybe we should all be buying stock in snow cannon manufacturers. <laughs> it's clearly clearly a, a booming industry. Um, yeah, come to Slate Money for all of your financial advice. We really like nail it every time. <laughs> But yeah, like we we all live in New York, we three, or close enough. And we basically had no snow at all this year. Nope. Like zero inches. No, like I haven't a had few to shovel flutters. Once. It's been amazing. Which is I know that's amazing. bad. And the oil profits, I feel like we could make some point here, but I don't know what it is, but it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think that's it for us this week, except for you lovely, lovely folk who are Slate Plus subscribers, you get the pleasure of listening to us talk about Tether. Otherwise, thanks very much for listening. Thanks for sending us the emails that we love to read on SlateMoney at Slate.com. And very many thanks to Anna Phillips for producing and managing to keep this show in one piece. It's not easy. Um, Otherwise, yep, we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger 
for the ones who get it done.